0: Hi, this is Lisa, and I have a new guest with me here today. This is Tim. Say hi, Tim. Hi, Tim. <laughs> uh, and Tim, uh, what what movie are we discussing today?
1: We are talking about 2013's *Prisoners*, directed by Denis Villeneuve. I, I'm pretty sure I pronounced his last name correctly there.
0: I hope so. I I always wonder if I've pronounced it correctly. I'm gonna go with that. If yeah, you want, I can. We can do what uh, we did on the. I, when I guest on the GMC podcast, we call him Denny B. <laughs> See, he that that, that,
1: that could work. That works. <laughs> so it, it's so, it's so funny. Like his first name, like being Den, Denny. And, it, and it's interesting because I had a, uh, College professor when I was at SUNY Oswego and his last name was Professor Denny, and that was the toughest class I had. And I actually got some kind of horror stories revolving around that. So when I hear the name Denny, I have these kind of weird flashbacks to like, oh my god, that was a time I was almost expelled. Wait, no, that's not what I'm talking about. Um, I'm not talking about with this, but <laughs> I digress.
0: <laughs> Different Denny. Yeah. yeah. And and uh, I mean, I'm really glad that you chose this movie because I, as we've kind of discussed. On Twitter, I'm a really big fan of his work. Uh, watched Blade Runner the pro- uh, 2049, the progress of that movie, Like a Hawk. I couldn't wait. Loved it. Um, I love pretty much all his movies. And so any, any one that we pick to discuss, I'm excited about. But actually, Prisoners, I guess now is my second favorite uh, of his work. So I I'm just really excited you picked this one.
1: Yeah, it was tough because I know we were we were we were talking back and forth like we should we we gotta talk about a movie yes we do <laughs> and then it, then it would just be like really pregnant pause like oh, what should we talk about I don't know and then like we, I threw it out there like all right let's talk about something because you had spoken about twenty forty nine on this show as well as your Facebook page uh, to great extent. and it's obviously your enthusiasm for the movie and Denny's work is palpable so I'm like all right it would make sense to talk about one of his movies. And I and I have theories about his feelings in regards to other directors in Hollywood and how he's viewed, and which we'll get kind of later get into later on. That the, the tough question was all right. What movie can we choose? I mean, Sicario was on my mind because maybe it's because the second trailer, the the trailer for the number two, mm-hmm. uh, just dropped this week. So I was like, oh, Sicario would be so awesome to talk about. But I'm like for some reason I just had a like, nagging feeling like prisoners should be the one we should speak about.
0: Yeah. Well, um, like I said, it, it's definitely, it's my favorite. It's kind of, it's, I don't know. It's, it's almost neck and neck with Blade Runner, but I think that there's some personal taste reasons why I like it so much. Uh, and we'll definitely dive into that, but, uh, yeah, he's just, he's got a lot of great movies and you could really spend a long time talking about any one of them. And that's what I like about his work. Um, So for this movie, did you see it in theaters or how did you see it?
1: Um, I did not see it in theaters. However, I knew about this movie because of – like I mentioned before, I went to to college at SUNY Oswego in upstate New York where I majored in broadcasting and film. One of the classes I took in the film program that was actually really beneficial to me and some of the film courses were just like, all right, this is just – it, it, it wasn't that beneficial. It wasn't that informative to me. But one class that was was screenwriting, and one of the classes we t- I think we it may have done it like for a whole week. We talked about uh, the writer of this movie, uh, Aaron uh, Giz Gizowski? I uh, well, I probably pushed his last name there. The writer of Prisoners, and we talked about the movie Prisoners itself, and we discussed the first o- first few pages of the movie even before I'd even seen it. It was just the the opening scene in the woods with like Hugh Jackman's model reciting the Lord's prayer and then the killing of the deer. And then him speaking to his son in a truck driving to, uh, to his house for Thanksgiving. And I was like, I was intrigued by that. I'm like, this is really interesting. And, and when I heard like, Oh yeah, Hugh Jackman's playing this role. I'm like, I'm curious to see how he would, how he would react to this role. And these, this kind of character, and because I had not seen that many movies of his outside the X-Men movie, so I have not really been too, I guess, entrenched in his entire filmography. So I'm like, all right. So like, it was always in the back of my head to see it. And it wasn't until I think possibly my last semester at SUNY Oswego that I saw one of the things that I was – very prone to do because I love the interlibrary system of like books and movies that you could rent out from other SUNY schools and be mailed to your school you'd pick it up like maybe a few days later and I rented the blu-ray from that from I forget which SUNY school it was and I had a, I had a night to myself and I ended up watching it and was engrossed the entire time
0: well that's that's really encouraging to hear your side of that because I felt that this movie sort of flew under the radar a little bit. I mean, I think it, it, it sort of gained buzz when it came out, and it definitely has a lot now, but that's that's really interesting to hear that, you know, uh, you guys discussed the screenplay at school. That's that's really cool. I, I think when this movie came out, I I know I saw it the year it came out, but gosh, I'm trying to remember if I saw it in theaters or not. I might have, actually. Um I- Go ahead.
1: Because I'm just trying. I'm, I'm looking up now when was it released. Yeah, it was um, 2013. It, 2013. And it was, all right, the United States, it was September 20th, 2013. So it's obviously, lean because of its strong performances and darker tone, it's obviously, a, it, this did not come out during the summer. It's a right. not a blockbuster movie. It's meant for kind of like, I don't want to say Oscar-baity kind of movie, but it is more leaning towards the Academy than it would be general audiences due to the subject matter. Mm-hmm. And so I guess that, I mean I can see why you probably could have missed this if you if you can't remember if you saw it was in theaters or not.
0: Yeah, and I've just noticed when I've had conversations with people, it's not a movie that you know everyone's seen. Um, they've definitely seen Arrival, and they may have even seen Sicario. But I think this movie in in his in in Denise's collection, you know, of works, it's not the main one people have seen. So I'm always excited to hear when someone's seen it and wants to talk about it and is enthusiastic about it because I've I've heard a couple, you know, reactions to the movie. So that's why I was, you know, I kind of wanted to discuss it. Um, But yeah, I I believe I saw it in theaters. And then I I actually own it. So this was one of those movies I was like, oh, I can watch this right now. But unfortunately, Mm -hmm. it didn't have any uh, special features. It was one of the purchases that doesn't include that I actually almost went out today and bought it on (laughs) blu-ray because I was like I can't believe this doesn't have like a director's commentary track on it but um I didn't end up doing that but I I did get enough just getting online and sort of delving into some some clips I even sent you a couple um Mm they kind of gave me a, a good feel for how how he sees this film how the director sees it and just the the flow of it um you mentioned the the screenwriter uh when I looked up his name I, I didn't see that he had a lot in his uh, in his film credits. Aaron Guz- Guzikowski.
1: No. I think that's I think that's right. I think I yeah. butchered. Yeah.
0: Oh no! I mean, I did, I don't know. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, it looks like he's done some work on TV, um, a couple screenplays there, uh, a movie called Contraband. But that's that's it. I was kind of surprised because it, it is. I think the story, the script, is probably one of the strongest things about this.
1: And I'm reading uh, from him on Wikipedia. The reason why this script was picked up because he wrote it back in 2007. Compl- it was first draft. Um, final draft was completed in before it entered production and won several screenwriting competitions and it was listed on the blacklist, which is one of the most famous lists in Hollywood of unproduced screenplays that mm-hmm. Hollywood really regards, just hasn't been made yet. And it was one of those things I think that's why and because my t- screenwriting teacher, she is a screenwriter herself. She's worked in Hollywood before and she just knew of it. I think that's why she brought it up in class, because it was uh. something that I think it's why she's like she just like outside the normal like every screenwriter in class you will you will you will talk about Casablanca, you will talk about Chinatown, you'll talk about Citizen Kane, and she thought maybe if she talked about more of a contemporary movie for our demographic, our age group, that we'd be more interested into it, and obviously left a, a an indelible mark on me. That's led led us to this conversation today.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would just I hope he gets more you know more work after this. Uh, totally, yeah. Um, but uh, you know, in this section, since we've kind of laid the groundwork for how you saw it and how you feel about it, um, let's go ahead and I will read the synopsis really quick and that way we can, after that, jump into talking about more about Denis and then the cast. So, here we go, Prisoners 2013. Kelly Dover faces a parent's worst nightmare when his six-year-old daughter Anna and her friend go missing. The only lead is an old motorhome that has been parked on their street. The head of the investigation, Detective Loki, arrests the driver, but a lack of evidence forces Loki to release his only suspect. Dover, knowing that his daughter's life is at stake, decides that he has no choice but to take matters into his own hands. Uh, yeah, that's it. Uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> um, I, I really, really like the plot. However, that, that synopsis, I mean, that's just a very surface-level introduction of what this movie is about. To me, one of the most exciting things about this film is how many twists and turns it takes. How many times in the movie I, I ask myself, "What's going on? What is happening?" Uh, and and how surprising it is, and how big the payoff is at the end. So, that that's why I want to talk about it.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Like I was watching when I was rewatching it last night for tonight's podcast. Uh, my dad had came home and he was wondering, like, "What are you watching? I'm like, Prisoners? What's it about?" And how I like to try and phrase movies, it's one of the – like I've taken – as a a filmmaker myself, as a writer myself, I've taken several screenwriting classes outside of school, and one of them I've taken is actually Aaron Sorkin's masterclass. Aaron Sorkin, the creator of the West Wing, writer of the Social Network, uh, Steve Jobs, and his upcoming movie that um, uh, was Jessica Chastain. I forget the name of it. However, the reason why I bring that up is because how he phrases a story is that – everything is, it's intention and obstacle. So, a story is not a story unless you have a but, however, or except in the sentence that's describing it. So, I try and phrase every story in that way. So, I'm like, I had that in the back of my mind. My dad asked me, so, what's the story about? I'm like, oh, it's about a detective trying to solve the case of two missing children, but one of the girl's fathers kidnaps the prime suspect for his own interrogation. And my dad's like, huh, that's kind of simple. I'm like, it is, but it's it's, it's all dependent on the execution of how the stories and how, the like you said, how many twists and turns happen throughout the movie.
0: I think it's, you know, I, I mean, obviously it's a drama dramatization, but I think that this movie, all the clues that you're given throughout the movie feel so not connected until you get the full picture until we we really pull back and we see how it's all how it all fits together in such in such a way that every single development feels surprising, even though in the grand scheme of things, it really does all make sense. It, it really doesn't feel like it when you're in it. And I think that that's really challenging to do with a mystery. And uh, you probably have noticed from a lot of my movie tastes and just from talking with me online that I'm pretty obsessed with with mystery, with detective cop dramas and things like that. But the bad part about being so into that kind of story is that you start to really get good at predicting what's going to happen next. And I really respect when a, a story is crafted in such a way that I can't do that, but that it still makes sense at the end. And so, yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying. Um, the way you describe that to your dad is pretty perfect because at the core of it, that is what happens. But it's so complicated once you actually get into the movie itself. You kind of almost lose sight of that towards the end, <laughs> you know?
1: Yeah, and it's not one of those movies that's so complicated and the mystery is so yeah convoluted that it really doesn't make sense i mean one movie that it it is historic and how great it is but the story is so convoluted like the original writer of the book and screenplay doesn't know how it really ends or how all the connects that's uh, howard hawks is the big sleep from 1946 Mm -hmm. at one point during the production like somebody asked like wait how does this lead to this and hawks turned uh, to raymond chandler how does this lead to this and raymond chandler was like I really don't know. And so it's like, yeah, you great you create s you've created an unsolvable mystery, a maze that you cannot find your way out, which is kind of an interesting way, like how prisoners is that it is a maze, but there is a light at the end of the tunnel.
0: Right. There's enough ambiguity and there's enough, like I said, new developments that happen in the story to where it's exciting um, and it's fun to watch and it keeps you guessing, but it's not a fake-out. At the end, it isn't like, you're like, well, what did those snakes mean? Well, what did the maze mean? I mean, it it all fits into the story. There's nothing that happens that's not on purpose, and I think that's that's pretty hard to do with a story that's this thrilling and in this much of a mystery. Um, I, I think that just speaks to Denis' uh, ability to craft... To craft a story, I I was listening to some of the behind the scenes and I think it was Jake Gyllenhaal that said like, you know, it would be really this this movie could be really simple and silly and not engaging. And just the way that Denis tells a story, you know, he's like the perfect filmmaker for this kind of script. And I agree with that.
1: Yeah. And especially since last night, there was one scene that that always stuck out with me. I'm like, why is this here? But finally clicked with me. It's when Jake Gyllenhaal's character goes to the woman who who used to live at the house where the the, the yeah. RV was parked in front of. I always thought like, why is this here? Like, why are we talking about this? Not realizing why that RV was parked out there in the first place. Why was Alex drawn to that house and everything? Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And and I really just I had a facepalm moment. I was like, oh come on, really? You should have seen that coming. And I felt so foolish after that.
0: <laughs> yeah, I've seen this movie several times, and I do still find new little pieces to it uh, that fit into the larger puzzle that I didn't notice before, and I'll talk about some of those as we get into it. Uh, We've kind of already gushed about him a little bit, but speaking about Denis Villeneuve, you know, I, I, as we stated earlier, I'm a big fan. I love Arrival. I love Sicario. Blade Runner 2049 is probably my favorite. Um, Have you seen Enemy?
1: i have not and i i want i really wanted to see it before i made a decision on which movie to watch and i'm like because like i know there's the only thing i've really seen about it. i've seen the trailer for it and i kind of know what it's about but i've also seen chris stuckman's like analysis the youtube reviewer Mm -hmm. uh analysis of enemy and i find that kind of fascinating and i'm and i'm I'm the, the kind of person that likes to have a three-act structure, beginning, middle, end, and kind of a traditional narrative. However, I am willing to – if it's if it's told in a very interesting and stylistic way, I can go with it. Like, uh, for instance, Drive is a – sure, it has a beginning, middle, end, but it has its own kind of certain pace and it has its own certain style of telling a story – and it's some things that are a little like already or i guess you'd say more art house than rather traditional hollywood movies in it sure and as specifically the the kiss of the elevator scene like how that's very heightened and everything and i think enemy is kind of that thing where it's like all right once the movie's over you you want to watch that with somebody and have a conversation with it some with that person and discuss it and I love how people say like dinner and a movie. I'm like, no, 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 it's movie and a dinner because it's more interesting to go to the movie first and then go to dinner afterwards and talk about whatever movie you just saw. That's whenever I try to go out with movies to, with people. I'm like, all right, we'll go to the movies and then we'll get something to eat afterwards because we're going to want to talk about it. Most recently, The Last Jedi, my friends and I went to go see it. We got out of it. I'm like, we got to go to a diner right now and let's <laughs> discuss. And it's kind of like kind of my a little... If, it's, if time is available, it's kind of like my little ritual when going to the movies. And I, anything I with you those that. movies.
0: That, that is so true. I will say I saw Enemy before this only because uh, one of my friends who's actually been a guest on the show before, Ian, he suggested it to us because he red boxed it and then we watched it. Um, and I didn't love it. I'll be 100% honest with you. I, uh, I didn't even realize it was the same director. It's very experimental. And I, I listened to a, a long interview. Uh, from Denis, because this movie actually came out at the exact same time as Enemy, literally the same year and like the same time. He released two movies simultaneously. Both you mean starring, Prisoners, right? Yeah, yeah. This one and Prisoners, sorry.
1: Okay.
0: <laughs> uh, Enemy and Prisoners at the same time. Uh gotcha. Both starring Jake Gyllenhaal. And I, I know I saw Enemy, but I saw it later, I guess. And I, I didn't make the connection that they were the same director. And I didn't love that one as much. But there's a a lot of interesting things about it. You can tell that he's really, like, experimenting. And I saw an interview where he talks about how they were basically just, like, brainstorming the whole movie. And, like, you know, Jake Gyllenhaal would have a suggestion and he had a suggestion. And they were both just kind of going crazy. Uh, Because previous to that, a lot of his other movies, like... Let's see. uh, In Cindy's and Polytechnic, he had more of ensemble casts. So he wasn't working one-on-one with directors the way he did with these movies. And so that was like kind of the first time that he was really working super close. And then he ended up using him for Prisoners also. And then they came out at the same time. It's kind of an interesting backdrop about Hmm. that. Yeah. But it's it's good. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's really... It's out there.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if you really want, like a a kind of like a mind mess up, I guess you make a double bill of that and like under the skin with Scarlett Johansson and be like and feel really weird afterwards. It's like, what did I just watch? What did I just put myself through?
0: Yeah, and I think I've seen it. I've seen it at least once. I might have seen it a couple times, but afterwards, I was kind of like, I don't know how I feel about that. Which isn't bad. I mean, it, it wasn't like I was like, oh, I hated that, but it was. It's definitely more art housey than prisoners is I will right say that. yeah, it's not a straight narrative but um, but I think it's worth seeing and it's it's interesting to see how he's grown as a director and where he was sort of coming from so i I definitely recommend it,
1: hmm. And I guess I'll have to ask you a question. Sure. Um, since we've since we were on the subject of Denny himself, what about his filmography are you drawn to specifically? Why like why do you keep coming back to his movies specifically over other filmmakers of his of today's day and age?
0: I I think it's uh, partly visual. Um, I like the way that he he'll show you something and you have to infer from what you're seeing. And I've noticed that's a really big connection between all the directors I like when you think about, I think, Nolan, uh, Fincher to a certain extent, Aronofsky, uh, Kubrick, um, you know, directors like that that are very, a little more visual. And sometimes people will say that there's not enough information that they're being given. Actually, I would even say that about Zack Snyder um that sometimes you're shown something and you as the audience have to make a decision about why you're being shown this, how it fits into the story and what it means. And I like directors that are able to do that. Leave you a little bit open to interpretation, but still have a strong story and still have, you know, great actors, a great look, everything, but but to have you draw some of that information, some of those conclusions yourself. And that I think with this movie in particular when you look up you know people's explanations of what the movie's about the symbolism they i don't know if you notice this but they kind of go off the rails a little bit like they start really reaching i think (laughs) for some of the explanations on what it all means but that's because it is intentionally left a little bit open so that's exciting to me anyway that's my long-winded answer (laughs)
1: it's okay i mean um i can see how people can be like reaching with it like i know this is the very famous documentary room 237 which is the exploration of like what the what could the shining really be and trying to find out what the subtext of that movie is Mm -hmm. and i watched like five minutes of it and they were introducing all the experts and why they were there and what their theories were and one person's like I am a expert on uh, Nazi Germany and like the fascist regime that was there. I think this movie has that themes in here. I'm like, well, of course you're gonna see that in there because that is your uh that is your occupation to be educated in that. And I'm right. like, and so I'm <laughs> like, I'm like, like so that's why I was like, no, I am not watching this. I am not dealing with this boulder dash here. I am not gonna waste my time with this. And I can see, how, especially with Kubrick, uh, and with especially with the prisoners here because there's such it is like you said, a visually arresting movie. And it's a lot of it is silence is not there is dialogue. Yes, but it is very visually based, especially since the, when the prevalent things throughout this movie are, are mazes and puzzles. And then there was one video, I think it's storytellers, the, the YouTube channel. and They talk about the, the minotaur and the maze being a big, I guess you have proponent to have the story is structured and how we, as the audience go on this journey to reach the end. And it does have a good conclusion. Um, So we think at the end of this movie and, and the reason why I, I I'm by me personally kind of drawn to Denny's work is kind of like you, that he is what he, I th- consider him on the same level as David Fincher, as a filmmaker that if for one, one reason, his filmmaking style and his presenting of a movie is that he rarely uses handheld camera work. Yep. Fincher doesn't do Fincher, Fincher rarely does it like seven. He has it the most. There's one shot in the social network that does that. Mm-hmm. Um, and of it's course I'm referring for to
0: a reason. It's never just like to cover up bad choreography or something.
1: No. I mean, at the end of mind the season, there's two handheld shots in the entire season. Is the very end It's the final punctuation that how that season ends. Yeah. I mean, of course, I'm referring to the video that kind of points out the what like of uh, every frame of paintings breakdown of David Fincher's filmography. Yeah. And Danny Den- yeah. and Denny does a very similar thing he here. Does. Yeah. Um. And as well as like his consistency of the storytelling, I think he's on the same level as Fincher. Now, I don't think as I consider Nolan, I guess, a little bit notch higher. Not because I'm just a I'm just a Nolan fanboy. It's just the fact <laughs> that I, I know I've been called that. I, I've reviewed most of his movies on my show, so you can oh, you can make that inference if you want.
0: I mean, you can see a definite pattern on my show, <laughs> the movies yeah. I like. So I, I'm definitely not judging you, and he's one of my favorite directors. So yeah, but not it's
1: at the, all. <laughs> it's the reason why is because he can make his personal movies, and as as peculiar as they can be. However, a wide audience will always come out for them.
0: That's true, yeah. And And I wouldn't say the same thing for Denis, necessarily.
1: No, I think it's just because the financial, like, um, disappointment of Blade Runner 2049, despite the fact it should have had a gigantic turnout.
0: Yeah, but you know, the thing is, okay, tiny little, it's it's still on topic, but the thing with, to me, with Blade Runner 2049, and the original that I think maybe... People marketing the movie don't really understand is the original is, is you know pretty slow and it lets you go on that journey with Decker to figure out what's going on in this movie I think Blade Runner 2049 not this movie but Blade, Blade Runner 2049 uh, it, it's a little faster paced, but it's the same in that it, it is a slow burn and I don't think general audiences like those kind of movies so even if you're the marketing is great, even if people fans are excited about it, it is kind of a slow sci-fi noir detective story. And I've heard a lot of people complain that that movie is too slow. Um and what I would say to that is, I mean it's it's detective work. It it is kind of slow and it is kind of boring. It is kind of something that you have to sit there and take in and understand and then move to the next thing. And when you do that too fast, it seems fake to me. And I like stories like that one, or even this one, as fast as it is, that give you some, some time for the character to slowly have like aha moments. So they're not just like, your hair's is blue. Uh, that's a clue, you know, like to where it's like silly, um, coming to conclusions really quickly, just so that they can move the story along, you know, coincidences. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I don't know, I just don't think that people, general audiences like that. As much i think that's why you know popular detective shows usually are shows like uh criminal minds or svu where things happen at like a lightning pace because people don't want to see detective work does that make sense
1: (laughs) no yeah you're right like one of my favorite criticism my dad's ever made about law and order svu is that 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 what most of that show is breathless that there's never a pause between dialogue between characters it's like this person did this. He was over there, and this happened there, and this and that. And it's it's just so like overwhelming, and how breakneck the piece, the the pace is. And I remember when before I saw Blade Runner, uh, 2049. I'm going into work, and one of the supervisors is like. Yeah, Rooney. Did you see a uh, uh, Blade Walker seventy fifty? And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, oh yeah, because because it, because it moves so slow, it's like at a walking pace. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, oh, you're real clever. I'm like, I-, I don't like the guy to begin with, so I'm just like, you're just bearing yourself to me. So like, just keep going at it. However, like the one joke I will like, the one like thing I I guess you could you could lay it, have a criticism against that movie of, of Blade Runner 2049 is that there are a lot of times of Brian Gosling just walking. And I'm like, all right, you could, you could put up the pace a little bit. You could, you could <laughs> strut a little bit, but it's more dramatic if he walks. I get that. Yeah. I know, I know this is a prisoners episode and we're talking about Blade Runner 2049. Last thing I'll say about that is that <laughs> it makes it, knowing how the history is in the financial kind of, I don't want to say bomb, of the first Blade Runner. I mean, it, it was bomb. It, 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 Yeah, I, I'm trying to be a little more diplomatic about the <laughs> phrasing of it. However, in with this movie, it, it, don't you think it's kind of just par for the course? Like, yeah, it would end up like this, despite how the, it seemed like social media was a buzzing waiting for this movie to come out. Anyway, back to Prisoners.
0: Back to Prisoners. <laughs> Segway, um But yeah, so let's actually, let's go through the cast a little bit since we've already talked about the director quite a bit. Um, so some of these character names, Kelly Dover, played by Hugh Jackman, obviously we know him as Wolverine the most. Uh, he's also a Broadway star. He's won uh, at least one Tony. So the guy kind of can do everything. Uh, and I agree with you that this is definitely sort of stretching his acting muscles, at least on film. And even though there's a lot of rage, kind of like Wolverine, it, it's it's definitely a more nuanced role than than some of his other work that we see so it is interesting like you take this guy that is so incredibly likable that everyone loves and I wouldn't say that his character is super likable in the movie right I mean there's times where we almost turn on him or I don't know when I first saw this movie there were times I wondered if he he was the killer
1: yeah, it, it may. It asks the it asks it a- asks the question. My articulation skills are wonderful tonight, right now. It asks the question: <laughs> Do the ends justify the means?
0: Right, and I and, mean, and, and they say in the movie too. They drop that hint, like you know, usually, or maybe I'm thinking of an interview. They they talk about usually when a child goes missing. I mean, the primary suspect is usually the parents, right? Statistically, that is who. You know, often is the perpetrator. Uh, In this case, uh, I I think most of the movie, you're pretty much on board that it's not him. But there were parts of the movie where I kind of like Loki was looking to him, wondering, too. Yeah, and I think that's intentional.
1: I mean, ever since the I forget the the little girl's name, the uh, patchet little girl who was part of like beauty patches that disappeared and everybody thought the family was responsible for it and that became part of like i guess just american culture that everybody was convinced that they were responsible for her disappearance that whenever a child goes missing everybody points at the parents and it seems like like you said statistically it's probably probably for the best that the first questions are asked of them and but like this movie does present the fact like oh he probably had something to do with it except for that one scene near the third act of the movie mhm when one of the girls uh, turns out uh, alive and says, you were there where the girls were being held.
0: Right. And it's like, obviously, he was there physically, but you wonder for a moment. And, I mean, some of the movie, I wondered how reliable of a narrator he really is. You know, when he heard Paul Dano say, um, they weren't crying until I left them. I don't know, like, later in the movie, I was like, did he really say that? You know, everyone doubts him. No one else heard it. And he I didn't hear that, it the first time. Yeah, and he wants it to be true so bad. It's like, and he's so unhinged by the end of that movie. He's got this drinking problem, and he's so full of rage. I mean, just an amount of rage that you feel like was already there, or at least I did. Uh, also, his doomsday prepping, just a lot about the character, was a little shady to me. <laughs> so I was kind of wondering towards the end if he did it or not. Um and I think they wrapped it up perfectly up. I'm glad it wasn't him. But I, I like that he's not that he's a good person and all that, but that you do start to kinda of doubt him at some points. I, I think that he played that character really well and I think that's a risk, you know, for Hugh Jackman to play someone that that is that angry but claws don't come out, you know. <laughs> he doesn't
1: Yeah. He's
0: not necessarily the good guy. Like you said, it, it is you are asking yourself a moral question in this movie. You know how far would you go, and how far should you go?
1: Yeah, and it's it's interesting when the scenes between Jake Gyllenhaal and Hugh Jackman. Whenever I watch it, and Jake Gyllenhaal is one of those actors, I will watch him at anything. He is in right. my top three favorite actors working today, along with Patrick Wilson and Joel Edgerton. Whenever they're in something, I'm like all right, they make all they all three of them make interesting choices. I will watch them, and when he's with the scenes with. Um, Keller's uh, Dover, uh, Dover, um, Hugh Jackman's character. He's trying to rise to that level, and I'm like, I'm sorry, Jake, you're not going to, you cannot out masculine, you cannot out man Hugh Jackman in this scene. You have to go a different way, and he he does. Yeah. But I love the fact that Jake Gyllenhaal does what a true cop would do: is that like he always say, "Hey, hey, sir, sir," and you're know, and say, "Mr. Dover, Mr. Dover," and trying to exude that authority over a normal citizen a civilian and trying to maintain some sort of composure in during in front of a civilian and i find that those two interactions specifically even from their very first scene when detective loki jake dylan character is informing them that we have interrogated alex jones for hours he has the iq of a 10 year old We do not think he abducted two children in the middle of broad daylight without nobody noticing and no physical evidence left in his vehicle. And over his not having any of it, he he is so wholeheartedly certain that this kid is responsible for what happened to his daughter and his friend's daughter.
0: Yeah, and I mean that would be ideal, right? That they have him, that that it can be solved quickly – but he, but you know, he doesn't actually have proof of that. And Detective Loki, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's character, is very by the book. And I, I can't imagine what it's like for a parent to go through something like that and to hear things like that. Oh yeah, we let him go. Oh, we didn't find any evidence. I mean, you, they're not a detective, so they don't know what the questioning was like. They don't know how that process went. They don't. They have to just trust this person that they don't even know with finding their children, and I think it's a really smart choice to have Loki be a little bit younger than Kelly Dover as well, because I think that factors in as well. He's constantly questioning and sort of undermining Jay Gyllenhaal. I mean, he, Jay is one of those actors, I don't know if it's like the big eyes or, or what exactly, but he, he looks even like a little bit younger than he is, I think. Mm-hmm. And so he just doesn't, you don't see him, and you know, he's not like this hardened detective. He's like this young guy, and so I just can't imagine what that's like for a parent to have to put all their trust in someone like him um, when they're kind of expecting him to look maybe more like his boss looks or, you know what I mean, someone who seems more authoritative. And I don't think that Loki always feels comfortable in that role either, so I I think that just adds to the tension in the movie and it makes it really believable that, uh, that Hugh Jackman would take the law into his own hands. I saw some behind-the-scenes where uh, Denny talked about it's kind of like the cowboy and the sheriff kind of thing. Their mm-hmm. dynamic, you know, where uh, where Hugh Jackman is, is a cowboy. He doesn't obey the rules. He goes out and he takes the law into his own hands, and Detective Loki is the sheriff. He's the law. Um, so, yeah.
1: It's interesting because three things. Like, one... Like you said, he is younger, so he's kind of perceived to be not taken seriously because of his age. And he does not have experience, quote unquote. His last name is the yeah. God of Mischief, so of course he cannot be trusted. <laughs> I mean, if we're if we're going by Norse mythology here, and the fact when we're introduced to him, he's it's Thanksgiving night and he's eating alone at a Chinese rest, Chinese food restaurant, yeah, not spending it with friends or family, and so maybe social interactions is maybe not his strong suit. Like he does. He can appear charming. He was charming to the woman that was working at the restaurant. And he can have conversations with people around him. But there is sort of a a slight separation between everybody else around him and how he treats his job. Whenever he's dealing with other cops within the precinct, he definitely seems like he's the most – he takes his job incredibly seriously. Not saying the others don't. It just seems that he is so wholeheartedly into the fact that he wants to get these girls home.
0: Well, and he's got this flawless track record, right? I mean, they, uh, the mom asks him, so you've never lost a case. And uh, he doesn't perk up to that that much. He doesn't go like, oh, yeah, I never lose a case. I'm the best. He kind of gives her just like a little look. And he has a little bit of trouble sympathizing and being in the moment with her, I noticed in that scene. As the movie goes on, his social interaction, I think, gets a little bit better. But it's like he's su- he's such a good detective. He's so focused that he doesn't really look at when he solves a case as like a 100% victory every time or a guarantee that he always will. It's like no matter how many cases he solves, he's always sort of, is this corny, a prisoner, (laughs) you know, to to his job. I mean, I think it's his entire identity and it's an obsession for him. So it doesn't seem like he takes a necessarily a lot of joy in it.
1: No, I mean, you could argue maybe it's an ego thing to just want to lose a case, but that's never really – he never boasts the fact – like you said, you never boast the fact that, oh, yeah, I have 100% um, record that I of clearance rate no matter what case I've taken on. It's not like he's not like a hotshot detective. Like say – like if it was like Eddie Murphy and Beverly, Beverly Hills Cop, he would boast about that. Yeah. Jake Hall and this, he wouldn't do that because he's like, all right, no, this is just the case and I'm just going to – Every fiber of my body is going to be in this to solve it.
0: Yeah, I thought it was a really nice touch for her to say it that way. You've never lost a case, right? And he looks at her and he's like, he says yes, but it's not very reassuring. Kind of like he's thinking, well, yeah, but that doesn't mean that I'm definitely going to find her. And then he says, don't worry, I'm going to find her. But it doesn't feel that genuine to me. You know, it it sounds like he's he's trying to play the role he knows he's supposed to play. He's supposed to say, yeah, I'm definitely going to find her, you know.
1: Yeah, he doesn't want really to give her false hope.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, since we're already talking about him a lot, uh, Jake Hall, he's also one of my favorite actors as well. Um, I, I think for me, my being impressed by him goes all the way back to his Donnie Darko days. Mm-hmm. Um, loved that movie. Uh, I think he does a great job in movies like Brokeback Mountain. Uh, more recently, Nightcrawler was really good. Uh, we talked about Enemy. Uh, he was in... The movie Zodiac, which I this movie gives you like a Zodiac vibe, doesn't it?
1: Okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, I mean, because Zodiac is all about the minutiae of a criminal case that spans several mm-hmm. decades. It's the journey, not the destination. That's how I pitched it to my dad to get him to watch it. He's still yet to watch it. But one day I will I will break him down like we're, we're going <laughs> to watch this. Um, yeah. And because like Fincher, is just very. Detail oriented. Um, another, I loved him in Jarhead. Oh, I yeah, thought he was yeah. fantastic in that. Um, I'm looking. I'm looking at his filmography right now. Oh, did you see uh, um,
0: that movie, the Netflix movie last year, Okja? I did not. You should see that. Have you ever seen? Um, the director is a, a Korean director. He did a, a movie called The Host.
1: Oh wait, wait, wait. That that wasn't a disaster monster movie, was it?
0: Uh, it's a monster flick. OK, it's really but that good. takes place
1: in takes place in South Korea, though, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's weird. It's like it's kind of like Okja. It's like it's a creature movie, but it, it, it's serious, but it's funny and it's moving and it, it's really good. I, I strongly recommend it. Uh, but Okja is a really good ease into that director's world. Um, and Jake Gyllenhaal plays an extremely odd character choice that I've never seen him do. He's very funny in the movie. And the movie has really funny moments. Actually, Paul Dano's in it too, uh, huh. but, but yeah, you should check that out. It's free. It's on Netflix.
1: All right, I have to check it out. And like you said, Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler is in, like you know, like how many people will make movies like their top ten movies of the decade, and Nightcrawler and like Whiplash are like two of my favorite movies in the past ten years. And I, I love. Yeah, and I and I just as I. I just kicked the day. I I kicked the fact that they both came out the same year. So I'm like, all right, do I choose one movie per year? Do I have to make a choice between the two of them? If I was going to (laughs) make said list, um, but I'll cross that day when we get to 2020 and his performance in Nightcrawler and is captivating and I absolutely love it. And Mm -hmm. especially I've come from a broadcasting world and seeing, and I have friends who work in the news, uh, world, and have dealt with people, not, not like the the business of like people going on collecting footage like this. And I'm like, ah, oh, that's got to be really strange to deal with people like that. It's like, that's eh, a little bit. But one of my favorite moments in Nightcrawler is just him sitting in his apartment. It's an extreme wide shot, him watching the news or watching TV. And he just starts laughing at a really dumb commercial. And he's, he looks around his apartment to expect like a reaction to other people in the room. And he's just laughing to himself. It was that moment, I'm like, all right, I can really watch this actor in anything he does.
0: Yeah, yeah. he's. I mean, uh, you know, I think he's one of my favorite actors today, as I already said. And honestly, he's a favorite for Denis, too. I mean, he loves working with him, and that's why he picked him for this movie again. Said he said he pretty much was, you know, entranced by him. I, I watched, like, a, a, a behind-the-scenes where he talked about he felt like they were brothers, like – they pull out the best parts of each other, uh, but they also play in each other's weaknesses and they, they're so comfortable with each other they got into arguments sometimes on the set, but they at the end of the day always made up and I really feel that vibe in in the movie. It I, I hope that they work together again.
1: Yeah, I mean, as much as I love Jeremy Renner in Arrival, I'm just curious what it'd have been like if it was Jake Gyllenhaal in that role instead.
0: Yeah. Or and I see a lot of connections between Loki, the way that his character operates in this movie, and the way that K, uh, Ryan Gosling's character operates in Blade Runner twenty forty nine. I definitely noticed that a lot this time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like he he picks like that kind of that look, you know, um, and that kind of acting style, and uh, I love it. It's great. Um,
1: nice,
0: nice, and, nice. Yeah. I guess the yeah. next person I kind of wanted to talk about a little bit was Paul Dano. He's he's actually one of my favorite actors too. I really like him.
1: Ah, uh, he's tremendous in almost everything he does.
0: Yeah. What uh, for me, like he, you know, he was awesome in. I'm pulling up his IMDb really quick. I guess the first thing I saw him in was Little Miss Sunshine. Little. Little Miss Sunshine. <laughs> uh, uh, that's a great film, uh, and and yeah, pretty much everything he's in. But I, I guess my second, or my maybe the movies higher for me than this one would be. There will be blood. Obviously, he was really incredible in that movie.
1: But like you mentioned, There Will Be Blood. I saw that with my dad, and it's the only movie. It's the only time it's ever happened to me. I forgot I was in a movie theater and it was the and once the movie was over i blinked and like wait where am i oh okay (laughs) it was that end scene in the bowling alley between the both of them is pure cinematic joy to me dano is one of those actors like he shows up like in anything like all right he's going to make an interesting choice in this role
0: he's definitely 100 in in every role that he's in and uh I, I was really interested to see how he played Alex, Alex Jones, the character that he plays in this movie, and he makes a lot of choices that, in the moment, you're not really sure what it's adding up to. Um, I, I definitely, for most of the movie, believed him, I thought he was innocent, but he did have those couple of moments where he'd spill a little bit of information, and so you don't really get a full idea of why he's operating that way until the very end of the film, but, um, but yeah, he, he delivers, as usual, a great performance.
1: And it's interesting because he doesn't – like acting is all about reacting and listening. Like The two most fundamental things is to – with an actor to just really listen to the other person, the scene you're with. And the whole thing with Alex Jones is he does not react to anybody. Mm-hmm. And it, it frustrates everybody else in the scene, especially Keller and especially Terrence Howard's ca- characters, Franklin. Is just giving them nothing and just driving them up the wall to push them to such extreme measures to get information.
0: Yeah, he's very unpredictable, and I think the fact that he can't really communicate with them on the level that they need him to is how they're able to sort of distance themselves from him, uh, humanity-wise. You know, which is actually terrible, but because <laughs> there's clearly something wrong with him. But uh, but I think that disconnect is part of why they're able to take it so far. I mean, he's not communicating with them telling them to stop necessarily the whole time and he's not giving them any information at all which of course makes sense towards the end of the movie but i can imagine yeah like you said it's very frustrating to every other character and is a really interesting thing for them to have to play off of totally yeah um and and so for the other actors you know obviously there's other great actors in this movie like you mentioned terrence howard and uh viola davis uh, that sort of have smaller parts in the movie. But I wanted to talk a little bit, to segue just a little bit, and talk about the cinematography of the film. Because I think that that's something that really draws me to this movie, is the look of it. Uh, and there's a good reason for that. It's because it's Roger Deakins. <laughs> He's <laughs> like, I guess, one of my favorite cinematographers ever. Um, it's It's kind of hard name. not to be a fan. Right. Like every brilliant movie with a dark color palette you can think of, he did. So... Yeah, <laughs> he's awesome.
1: Uh, so, wh- where would you like to begin with the cinematography of this?
0: Um, a couple quick things that I want to throw in. Uh, I-, I-, I heard from one of the behind the scenes videos I watched, Denis talked about showing. Oh, I'm sorry, something fell. Uh, <sighs> <laughs> so Denis <laughs> talked about showing uh, him a series of photographs, and he was like, this is the color palette I want. And then he kind of drew a little bit from his hometown of Montreal being kind of rainy and dark. And he's like, okay, this is how I kind of want it to look. Um, And I just really like the way that he played with that in this film, the look of, which takes place in a a rural town in Pennsylvania. Uh, But I think it's it's gorgeous. And I think one of my favorite scenes is, it's one of those clips I sent you where, what's his name, Uh, Loki is in the car, and he's following Kelly, and then Kelly comes out of the liquor store, and it goes from rain to snow, I definitely noticed that this time that I was watching, so it's really cool to watch that anatomy of a scene where they break down that choice to go from rain to snow, and just how, I I agree, it was very effective in making the moment feel extra tense, just because of the weather, Uh, and so yeah that's where i would start how about you
1: and it's 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 so interesting especially in that scene where like i mentioned before when we were in our conversation that it's all about point of view of who's watching who in that, that moment because it is like a typical detective story where a detective is following a person that could be a suspect trying not to be found out is and because we see from his point of view from loki's point of view from within his car and then we see from Keller's point of view of noticing that he's being followed. And if, like one of the like, key things to storytelling is that, like I mentioned before, like you have an idea, you have an intention, but something goes wrong. Something always like you have a beats, like so a character wants this, but this happens, this gets in the way. Like you think of our, let's say uh, toy story, for example, want to find out well, what are all the toys there? What are the new toys that Andy's getting? Everything's going fine. Everything seems to cool. Rex knocks over the walkie-talkie, and knocks the batteries out. We don't know what's going to happen. And you have in this scene where I'm just going to follow him. I'm going to see where he's going to go and what this location means to him. But he, but Loki is found out because uh he's parked on the street. A car pulls, uh, a truck pulls by. I think it was a garbage truck. Honks his horn, and to get him out of the way, Keller notices, doubles back from where he was originally going to go, and he goes back into the liquor store and lies about where he was, what he was really doing. And like you mentioned before, with the changing of the weather, there is a certain, it adds a layer to it. And it's another thing that another video of uh, every frame of painting is done about the camera work of Akira Kurosawa. The one thing that he would always do in all of his movies is that he would add weather during some part of his movies to add a layer of density to the frame. And since this is, and uh, I like the fact that it starts as one weather pattern and changes just like how the relationship between Keller and Loki changed due to that conversation they had in Loki's car.
0: Right. And I mean, I think, you know, this this uh, cinematographer obviously has done a lot of incredible work like Skyfall, uh, Blade Runner 2049, Sicario, No Country for Old Men. Um and he's uh, one of the few British directors we mentioned in, in the episode about 2049 that he actually holds the camera himself, which is kind of unique.
1: Uh, yeah, you know it's a Roger Deakins movie. A, if, A, there's a lot of silhouettes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's something, <laughs> yes, there's a lot of things called practical lights where it's like a lamp is the motivating light of the scene. It could be the only light in the scene. Mm-hmm. And that it's an amber, yeah, and an amber, yeah, uh, and it's an amber color palette. And it's amber hue to the lights, mm-hmm. like you think of in Skyfall when Bond is entering that casino where it's light, it's red, it's orange, And he's riding that little boat inside. And inside the casino, it's a very amber-heavy look. The candlelight, the, the candlelight, um, oh, in prisoners, what candlelight. What the fuck, it, start, it starts with a letter V. Yeah? It's um, about the girls that are missing. All the light for the most part of that scene comes with the motivating candles in the scene and it's interesting that roger deakins is a, a director of photography that started out with film and jumped to digital and been that person ever since he's been a big proponent that digital cinematography is the way to go and there's there are many filmmakers that are with him with that there are other filmmakers that are like no we still want celluloid like Wally Pfister, the who was the Christopher Nolan cinematographer for years. Uh, there's Hoyt, um, then uh, I forget the other guy's his full name, who took over for Pfister. He's photographed the last two Nolan movies. He's photographed Spectre after Roger Deakins. And I think what makes Deakins so awesome as a cinematographer is that. For the longest time, like it's my eye could tell, oh, that was shot in film. That was shot on digital because I'm the kind of person that believes there should be a choice for filmmakers out there that you should be allowed to use whatever medium you want. And when I saw Skyfall, it was the first time my, I said to myself, it's the opening scene when Bond's in the hallway. And I'm like, I know it was shot digitally. I know that. And I remember that because it's the first digitally shot Bond movie. So that's in the back of my head watching the first open minutes, first opening minutes, and I realized, my eye cannot tell a difference anymore. Yeah. I and maybe think... it's...
0: Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead.
1: And I think uh, made it's because of just the master level that Deacon's accrued over so many years as a cinematographer.
0: But uh, uh, along that note, let's talk about some of uh, your favorite scenes from the movie. Uh, and you can go chronologically if you want, or you don't have to. Just what are the scenes that stand out for you? The
1: The, the one scene, if I had, like, there are several scenes I really enjoy about this movie, but if I had to pick one, it's, and I mentioned it last night in the comment section when I was talking about that I was watching this, it's that when Hugh Jackman's character Keller realizes he can't, like his fists are not enough to beat the information out of Paul Dano's character is that he tells Franklin Terrence Howard to hold the the kid up, hold hold Paul Dano up while he grabs grabs a hammer and says, I'm going to use this on you unless you tell me. And it's framed outside the room. It's in the dilapidated the dilapidated apartment building where his grandfather used to own and live. It's framed through the doorway. The three of them are in this this bathroom. He screams, "Tell me over and over" as he smashes the sink to pieces, and and then buries the hammer into the wall next to Paul Dano's head. How much trust had to be given to? Hugh Jackman, that he would not hurt anybody in that moment. I'm yeah. And I'm sure, like, of course, he is a dancer, He and he is a bodybuilder, but there's a reason why in fight scenes you never have two actors fight. That's why you have a stunt person there, because they're in full, complete control of their body, more so than actors. So having three actors with a dangerous object and then having it being that close to somebody's head is nerve-wracking that I think that's why they only did that in that one wide shot Mm -hmm. as well as the fact that it having all three reactions within the same frame not have to cut two close-ups I think makes that scene even more powerful
0: right I I think I really like the the POV of being outside of the outside of that room almost like you're watching helplessly this guy be so violent and then I felt like the focus of the scene too was Terrence Howard's face because he's just so horrified. He's kind of you in a way, just like looking at Hugh Jackman going, like, you're you're a monster, you know? And it's just, it's a really good scene. I, I think one of the things that I really like about Denise directing is that when he uses violence, it it's pretty sparing, but when it is used, it's extremely effective because he never, um, and we talked about this in the Blade Runner episode, he doesn't usually show it from the point of view of the aggressor, he usually shows you the point of view of the person being attacked. Um, in this case, he has we have all three reactions, but it's still not you're not like behind Hugh Jackman just watching him wail on this guy, you know. And in fact, the scenes where he's really beating him up, you don't see anything. And I feel like that's actually more effective to do it that way, you know, because you're focusing on the victim a little bit more, and so you get a greater idea of the impact than if you're the if you're the one doing the attacking
1: right he he doesn't glorify the violence Never, yeah. he shows it how it really is
0: mm-hmm. and it's and uh, yeah it's good i love that about his directing style
1: it, it's a it, like it would be like inappropriate. Like somebody like somebody gets shot in sicario you feel the impact of it you feel the how devastating a gunshot can be they watch say a john woo movie and you see somebody <laughs> diving through the air two brettas one in each hand in slow motion firing i'm like obviously it's a very different intention of what you're supposed to be feeling in that moment.
0: Right. Right. I like the grittiness and the realness of it without it being, uh, like torture porn or over the top or, you know, glorifying it. As you said, it's not like that. It's like intentional and it's part of the story. It's funny. I think somebody in our group was mentioning that, you know, they can only watch this movie like one time that there's so many scenes like that. And I kind of forget until I see the movie again, there are quite a few uncomfortable scenes in the movie but I appreciate that about it because I think it should be uncomfortable. You're supposed to have moments of doubt with these characters and, and sort of fear your main protagonist and wonder how far they're going to go. And I think that that's part of the story. And if you try to shy away from that or pull back from that, then the story itself isn't as effective. So, I, you know, I, I like some, some of those are the best scenes
1: totally i mean it's not it, prisoners is not one of those movies like hey i have a free evening what should i watch i'll watch prisoners <laughs> right no it's a movie you have to be emotionally prepared for mm-hmm. much like a clockwork orange or uh, i'm trying to think of another one that's really hard to watch like you can watch like once you're like taxi uh, driver
0: yeah that's one of my favorite movies ever taxi driver uh requiem for a dream
1: oh jeez. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's like a watch every I, 10 years kind of movie
1: yeah, and then you feel <laughs> terrible for, it, and you hold yeah, your arms like, oh, sh- like I like. I love you. I'm not gonna stick anything in you.
0: <laughs> yeah. So yeah, yeah. It, it definitely has uncomfortable moments, but it's not that I like that it's uncomfortable. I like the way that that plays into the story and how effective it is. I I, I do respect a lot that Denis doesn't doesn't glorify violence, and you know, where a lot of movies do, and so I kind of like how restrained he is, but it's still uncomfortable regardless.
1: Yeah, um, another favorite scene of mine is when Detective Logie um, tracks down Bob Taylor, played by David DeSmelchin, to his house, and they're in they're in the doorway, and they're having the conversation where Why'd you run away from me that night? And he's like, I didn't run away from you, like, and it's it's, Jake Gyllenhaal has like the biggest grin in the world, and just slowly fades away, and it's so it's a it's a really subtle moment where he just goes, uh huh. And it's underneath his breath, like it's like, and then that's when Bob Taylor's character s- closes the door on him, and he Loki kicks it in and um, bops the guy off the wall before handcuffing him.
0: When you're seeing the inside of the apartment from Bob Taylor's perspective, and you're getting to see all those mazes on the wall, you know, it's like uh, you're seeing his perspective. And then you're also looking at Jake Gyllenhaal, who's trying to make a decision whether or not to kick this door in, what he's going to do next. And he doesn't have information that we have yet. And I I always like it in scenes when they do that. Um, And then once he kicks the door in, handcuffs him and goes to the the bedroom thinking that, you know, the, the children might be here. And you're thinking that too, right? I mean, at this moment, we don't know if he's actually, if this guy is the killer. And so he goes into that room and there's all those ominous boxes that are locked up and he kicks them open and there's snakes in them and bloody clothes like the the craziness of that scene like you just have no idea what any of that in that scene means what it connects to um, how it's all going to fit in I, I admit at that point in the movie I was kind of worried I'm like is this going to make sense later like did you have that thought
1: it's interesting to see where I, it was a question I had I'm like is this is this going to add up or is this just a thinking like oh this is like it's going to make the people ask what does it mean what does it mean very much like jack jack skellington trying to figure out what what christmas means however how it actually ends up that it does make sense within the confines of like the revelation about bob taylor's character later on it's a good mystery it leaves you breadcrumbs and entices you to find out what's going on you want to know the explanation is and i really enjoy that moment because you want to get to the end you want your answers by the end of this movie
0: Right, I like how many players are in the story. Um, you know, Bob Taylor's one of them. Another one is that uh, in the towards the beginning of the investigation, when Loki is um, so he he has to let Paul Dano's character go, so he's kind of looking for another lead, and he pulls up a bunch of uh, sex offenders that are in the area. And one of the first places he goes to is a pastor's house, or a preacher's house, and. Um, when he gets there, the guy, you know, he's, the, the the scene opens with he's on the floor. You think maybe he's dead. He breaks in. The guy's just drunk. And then he uh, notices when he's looking around the room, or around this guy's house, that uh, that he's moved the fridge because he sees that the, the cord is stretched. And so he pushes the fridge back and reveals a door. And he's like, oh my God, what am I going to find in here? Opens the door. There's no stairs. It's just a dark hole, which I think was like a great creepy visual, and then he finds that body down there. And I feel like, you know, he, he asked the, uh, the father, he's like, you know, what happened? And, uh, you know, why'd you do this? He said this guy killed children and he bragged about it. And I think, especially when you get to the Bob Taylor scene later, you're starting to feel like, okay, we've gone down all these different suspects and none of it is really connected. And I just think it's really genius in the end how it all is. You know, because I mean, those could have just been other suspects that he follow and nothing happens with that. Like when you watch some other mystery stories, you know, you'll follow a guy for a little while. He's really suspicious, but he didn't do it. But it doesn't have to do with the overall plot. But every every suspect that he follows does. They're all connected to the main story somehow. I think that's an interesting choice. One of the things I really like about the movie.
1: It's... Because I had that question, I'm like, what does this all mean? Like, yeah. does this, will this, will this resolve itself? Um, because when I watched it at, when for the first time, I didn't get a chance to watch all of it in one sitting. I had to stop it and go back and then finish it the following night. Mm-hmm. And so uh, in the back of my head during the rest of the day, I'm like, what's with the body in the bottom of the house? Like, what does that have to do with anything? Yeah, like, because they kind wh- of
0: forget all about it for most of the movie. Like most of the movie, they don't bring it up again.
1: No, and (laughs) was that priest defrocked?
0: So the impression I got was that, yeah, that he was a child molester and that he had been uh, disgraced and that's why he was there. There was really no other reason for him to go to his house except that he was probably on that suspect list. So he went there, and I even felt like his drinking, all that could have just been because he's awful. And then there's also that part of the scene where Loki says – you know, I spend a lot of time in a boy's home. I would love to uh, rough up somebody like you, something along those lines. So to me, that implies, you know, uh, Loki spent time in the foster care system. Why do people end up in the foster care system? What kinds of things happen to those kids? I, I was thinking sexual abuse or something. And so I, I thought that's what he meant. Like, it would you a guy like you would be pleasure for me to beat up because of the kinds of things that you did. Um, and you know, he, it feels like a real misdirect when, you know, you don't know why he killed that guy. He just like, well, this guy killed 16 kids. And he's like, I think that's why Loki's kind of like, well, you're a disgusting criminal. Like, why do I care about your point of view of why you killed this guy? It sounds like you're just trying to make it sound like he's worse than you. And that's your justification or some kind of redemption. Um, And then he doesn't have any more information than that. And so you kind of, the story kind of just moves away from him for a long time. But that was what I got out of that scene.
1: And it's funny that it, the, the priest has this weird kind of moral code that yeah. I know I'm a disgrace, but this person's a monster. So yeah, I put, I did. But, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I put him down and it's like, it's as once the movie's over and you realize, Oh, this man was the uncle to Alex Jones, Paul Dano's character. And that him and his wife, have been killing children because they believe God took their kid away via cancer and decide to take, have a war against religion or war against faith by taking the children away from this earth. And, and going to that scene where the aunt is, is kind of explaining everything to Keller while she's luring him to a hole in the, in the ground, in the backyard of her house. That so easily could have been like a James Bond, let me monologue about my entire plan yeah. and hope it won't stop me. But no, because I think the actress does such a great job. I'm, I'm looking for the actress now. Um, Holly. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of what was it? I'm trying to think of it. It's Alex Jones. Sch- 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 sch. So not Melissa Leo. Was it Melissa Leo? Yes, it was Melissa Leo. Um, she plays as so Matter of not like matter of fact, they like, oh, this is what I do. I'm like, no, this is my purpose in life. And she sincerely believes she's doing the right thing by punishing God's children.
0: Right. And she's the she's the brainchild behind everything. I mean, she's the one pulling the strings. It seemed like her husband, the the priest or father says that he kind of confessed to him. Um, and then that's when the father encouraged him, oh, come over to the house and tell me about it. But then he started bragging about everything he did. That's when he killed him. Yeah. Um, but like, to me, it seemed like he at least had possibly some remorse. And I think maybe they kind of misdirect you with her being so small and so meek. You know, you think, oh, maybe the husband was like the, the guy behind all this. But no, you find out she's very smart, very capable. Remember Loki says there's no way that a guy with the IQ that Alex Jones has could have pulled all this off, but definitely this woman could pull it off. And you feel that way because of the way she's able to control like every situation that she's in. Um, And I think, I think you're right. I think the actress does a really good job of of just seeming so evil, so unremorseful. Like it's just, it's a very convincing performance.
1: And if you want to see her in another villainous role, uh watched kevin smith's red state
0: oh i haven't seen that
1: it's it's pretty much it's kevin smith's like true blue horror movie that's also kind of like a siege movie at the end but and she has her she's one of the standouts along with um uh wow michael Rapper. i can't it's gonna bother me now that um the he was the sheriff in like from Dust Till Dawn, mm-hmm. and he was in much of like the other like Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez movies. After Michael Parks, there we go. Okay. wow, yeah, I was having a brain fart there, and I'm like, don't do this to me, on Mike. I've been doing so well tonight. You have not <laughs> screwed up too much tonight, so yeah, I recommend that. But um, another scene I really enjoy. And it caught me completely off guard is when Bob Taylor kills himself in custody.
0: Yes. I mean, like later they're like how did that happen? And you're like even when that scene wraps up, in my mind I'm like, "Wait. How did that he got the gun? He it happens so fast that it's just so shocking." And I think when I was watching it again this time, I noticed he says, you know, he's like, "Tell me what happened. Tell me." And he goes, "I can't." And then he shoots himself. And I think in that moment, you're not sure why he can't, other than to frustrate the main character, Loki, right? And only to be another dead end, he's not going to be able to question him or get more information. But I think when you go back and watch it again, it's like the children that they kidnapped were so brainwashed, they literally can't give you the information.
1: Right. And
0: You know, in the same way that it makes sense later, Paul Dano you know, first of all, he's drugged, but I, I also think even when he's completely off the drugs, he's never able to tell them what happened because he's brainwashed into never divulging that piece of information. Um, and I, I just think like that scene could have just been frustrating and just kind of like, oh, that was shocking, but what does it mean? But it does play a significant part in the plot later too.
1: Definitely. Mm-hmm. And another scene I really enjoy is when, they believe they have their man with Bob Taylor and they have, they have the parents come and inspect the clothes. And it's just Hugh Jackman sitting outside the conference room waiting to be called in. And he's just reacting to Terrence Howard and Viola Davis like uh, leave. And he has no idea what's going on. And it's all on his face. He's not yelling. He's not screaming. He's not being physical. It's just pure reaction to, wait, what do they know and what's making them so upset? And I just really love that moment from Hugh Jackman right there.
0: Yeah, and, and I mean, the first time that these characters, I think, also have a moment of doubt. I mean, did they torture the wrong man? Did he really have nothing to do with it and they have the right man in custody, you know?
1: Right. Um, and, yeah, go ahead. And it's just – and then when he finds – and he's then – when Hugh Jackman is speaking with Jake Hall, he doesn't believe – He believes he's still on the right and he's got the right man, but when he sees the article of clothing that reminds him of his daughter, it's that realization that I've really screwed up and I have done something horrible to somebody that's probably innocent. Yeah. And it hits and as well as the guilt that he has not saved his daughter, it all hits him like a tidal wave in that moment.
0: And yet he still shifts the blame and says, This is your fault. You waited too long to Loki. Like he puts it all back on him which I thought was interesting.
1: Yeah. I mean, because, because he's just, just like, I don't want to say like a generalization, but he's such an alpha male that he will, can never admit while well, he's wrong or he's, he's done something incorrect because everything up until this point, he's been the person that's right. And it's interesting that Maria Bello, who plays his wife in the movie kind of retreats into a, almost a childlike state and lets him make the decisions of trying to find their children And says, you are supposed to protect us from anything. Him being such a uh, extreme person when he thinks that doomsday is around the corner. And he's so prepared for whatever contingency happens. Except the fact that his kid's being kidnapped. Right. His his daughter being.
0: Right. It would take a special kind of person to want to marry somebody like that. I mean, he definitely seems eccentric and obsessive and controlling. I mean, because he, I think that's his thing. He's always, like like you're saying, he's always been in control. He... He makes things happen and in the story he does, that. he doesn't wait for the detectives to make a call. He doesn't wait for them to do things. He springs into action. It's like act first, ask questions later. But that doesn't help with the investigation. He's not able to beat the answer out of Paul Dano. He's not able to torture him until he finds his kids. He's totally powerless. And it's like to be so prepared and then have your kid taken during Thanksgiving when you're just taking a nap or whatever they were doing, like that's, that's so horrible for him and just something that he's never really able to come to terms with or confront himself about. Um, enough to where, you know, they kind of hint that he's got demons in the closet. He turns to drinking again. And, uh, there's a scene where he's saying the Lord's prayer, but he can't say that part of the prayer where it's like, forgive those that have trespassed against us. Like he just skips that part. I noticed this time. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, it just it says a lot about his character, and again, I think that's the part of the movie where I'm starting to to doubt him a little bit. Um, but, but yeah, just oh, what a what a good scene! You're so right.
1: And, and I think that in the context of that prayer, I think that's probably the most important passage of that prayer is to be able to forgive those right. who trespass against us, and 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 lead them not to temptation. And, and so it's it's interesting that despite his his religious background, like he when he reads, like the very opening dialogue is him reading the prayer while his son and him and the son are hunting. And he has a cross hanging from his uh, uh his his mirror in his truck that he's comes from a religious background and seems like this situation is obviously questioning his faith and so on and so forth. But my final favorite scene in this movie is when Jake Gyllenhaal finds Anna is wounded finds out she has been drugged by Melissa Leo and he has to get her to the hospital. Yeah. It is probably one of the most tense car chase, or car, I don't want to say a chase, but a car, I guess, r- ticking clock, He has to race, I've ever seen, along with probably one my one of my all-time favorite movies, and it's my favorite car chase. It's The French Connection, mm-hmm. when Gene Hackman's ch- chasing after the train. And I think it's the fact that he is, Visually impaired because he was wounded in the head. He's bleed. He's bleed. His he's bleeding into his eyelid. So he's that's impair, impairing him. It's nighttime. It's snowing, and he's doing seventy miles an hour on windy roads.
0: Right. And and even the beginning of that scene was shocking to me the first time. I mean, you know, there's that shocking death with uh with the the Bob Taylor character, and then this this part where he confronts uh, the villain, and she shoots him, and he shoots, and I, I guess, you know, a cliche would be that he just gets her, and that she would just die, but the fact that she grazes him, I don't know if you felt that way, but that shocked me right there, and then, yeah, the chase to the hospital is just so intense, you're just wondering if he's gonna make it, you're thinking about Hugh Jackman and that hole still, like, just all of it is so intense, um, uh, yeah, I, I wasn't sure what his the extent of his injuries were gonna wind up being in the end,
1: right. or that he would get there in time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I, I was literally gripping my pillow, like, please get there in time. Please save her. <laughs> and I guess that's the point of the scene. and it obviously worked. And I love the fact that not a lot of many car modern car chases do this that where the reason like i another reason why I love the French connections uh, chase so much is that they'll cut to the car's point of view. Where it's like a low wide shot from the ground, racing forward, and you have everything is flying past you in such a uh, quick succession that you like you as a viewer like almost like dodging things like as if they're gonna come out of your screen. Mm-hmm. That it's done in this and it's done really well. It's funny. I was reminded of this scene actually recently when I last weekend. Um, I actually went downtown to uh meet up with some friends and it was snowing out i wasn't going well i was not going nearly as fast I, i'll say that <laughs> i was not going like 70 i was going like maybe 45 but it was snowing out and i'm like and for some reason this just came in the back of my mind I'm like all right i'll slow down a little bit because like, i'm feeling a little nervous right now and so i guess then that and i was driving a little bit safer to go out and have fun with my friends
0: yeah um no but i i, I agree it's really good um and Actually, one of my favorite scenes in this movie is the very end. I love the way that this movie ends, because you get that closure a little bit with the little girl being saved, but um, you know she she's still drugged a little bit. But she thanks the detective. But then the mom mentions, you know, is he going to go to jail? And he's like, yeah. And she's like, do you think you're going to find him? It's the same question like at the beginning. Do you, you know are you going to find them? And he says, yes. And then it's just chance that he uh, is able to save Hugh Jackman because Hugh Jackman's got that whistle in the ground, and I like how in the hospital scene they call back to that a little bit when uh, he mentions, or she mentions the little girl's whistle around her neck. And then uh, you know they're they're back at the um, the perpetrator's uh, house and they're digging, and the diggers say, the excavators, they say, uh, you know we're going to call it a night. They turn off the music. They had music on kind of loud. I noticed this time they turned it off and they said, you know, all we found was a bunch of dead snakes and shit. And he says, well, uh, you know, we'd say hope for the best prepare for the worst, which is something Hugh Jackman had said earlier in the movie. And then he just kind of stands there, the cars drive away and he's waiting, just sort of looking around thinking. And that's how he hears the whistle. So it's like Hugh Jackman was probably whistling all, all damn day, but because they had that music on, because they were digging, because the cars were on, like, you know, it's just chance that he stayed there long enough to hear it. And he turns and looks at the uh, the area where Hugh Jackman is buried and it just fades to black. I I thought that was just an awesome ending.
1: Yeah, because you could probably think like, he's in that hole. He could hear people walking around having conversations. He's like, oh, this is my chance to get out of here. I just have to blowing this whistle long enough and hope and hopefully they'll hear me but it probably was disheartening that he's been probably been blowing for hours <laughs> yeah. and, to no avail
0: right 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 yeah i just it, it's one of those things that again i feel like it rewards you when you see it a second time all the little clues about the whistle um that scene with uh, where he's in the dark and there's that little light and he sees the whistle there and i was like oh, okay so maybe he's gonna make it um but yeah it's like there's a point in the climax of the story, we kind of forget about him for a little bit. I'm glad that we don't, that he didn't die in there. <laughs> I yeah. I like that he, you know, they imply he was saved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, so let's see. Uh, were there any other things you wanted to touch on about the movie? You don't have to pick a favorite scene, but is there just something, you know, maybe you wanted to talk about, about the mazes or anything like that? Any of the symbolism?
1: Um, I love, like like I mentioned before, that it's kind of like Minotaur and the maze. At least that's one theory of it. I like how Loki's tattoos actually do say a lot about his character, especially. I forget what I forget what the definition of on his finger tattoos. Uh, there like is
0: horoscopes, right? It's like Scorpio, a couple other things. I was really right at him this time, yeah.
1: And they do translate something as well as they translate something else, like the stuff on his neck mm-hmm. and everything. And it, I do question, like, all right. I presume, I guess he was an undercover cop at one point. Is that why he's allowed to have these many, so many open tattoos and still work in the police department?
0: Yeah, or maybe he uh, had a rough life and then he sort of changes ways. Maybe like a reaction thing. Also, he's got that Freemason ring. So I don't Mm -hmm. know if that's like a memento from his father or or something like that. You know, you kind of wonder what that's about. Um, The facial tick that they never explain.
1: Oh, yeah, and how it progressively gets more and more... Um, uncontrollable for him
0: mm-hmm. yeah it's it's a nice touch and it's subtle and it, again it's like one of those details where it's there, but they're not gonna you know this movie isn't gonna hold your hand and explain everything to you they're just kind of neat little Easter eggs in there for you to think about
1: no it like we've met like you mentioned it before this movie rewards multiple viewings mm-hmm. and yeah. i and I think it's i think that's the that is the mark yeah. of a good movie is that you want to go back and discover more in there.
0: Right. Like, I have I always think about uh, Hugh Jackman's character, the thing with his dad's house. Like, I always wonder what that that's about. I mean, I know it's a location so that they can torture Pauldano, but but, um, you know, they mention that his dad was a prison guard, and it's kind of ironic at the end of the movie he ends up being a prisoner. You know, he's going to go to jail. I mean, there's no way he's not going to go to jail for what he did to Pauldano. Yeah. But... Um, you know, I think that speaks a little to the brutality of how he must have grown up if his dad's a prison guard um, who's obviously well-respected in the town, but I wondered how he died. Like, is he holding on to this house because his father, I don't know, something dark like committed suicide? Or I don't know. It just To me, there, there's little hints that, you know, wh- why, why is his character the way he is? And I feel like they give you enough little hints at what could have leaned him that way that makes it really interesting to me.
1: Yeah, I mean, when... Loki looks up the information about that um, residence and finds out that, that that Keller's father did commit suicide. Was oh, a prison right. guard? Okay. okay, yeah, yeah. You were you were on the right track there. Okay, I couldn't and, remember
0: if the if the newspaper said he committed suicide or not. I couldn't remember that part. I just I'm remember pretty, that he was a prison guard for sure.
1: Yeah, I'm pretty sure he did. I'm um, uh, listeners, let us know if we're wrong, yeah. please.
0: <laughs> and, and, hey, uh, I'm wrong sometimes. <laughs>
1: yeah, page. no, uh, uh, totally. But, uh.
0: But yeah, I and, mean, I like that about it. I liked that detail,
1: and the fact that he cannot let go, and he's letting this rot, right? And he can, he can, and, and like, despite the eggings from his family, like, yo, we can, we can renovate this and make bank because it would be, it would be a new apartment complex in the town. There, obviously, people there'll be plenty of tenants that we want to live there, and, but it's obviously that Hugh Jackman cannot let go of whatever. Clinging memories he has to his father and And in that building specifically
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah it makes And he
1: becomes there And he becomes a prison guard Himself by watching Dano in that In that building
0: Yeah it's kind of scary it's like what kind of dad was his Dad but I don't know but um just Another really cool little Detail in that movie that you don't Get fully explained but it's not necessary To the main story for it to be explained So I just really appreciated it Um Yeah so I guess let's go to our our final couple of questions, unless you had any other thoughts that you wanted to add.
1: No, no. Well, we can move on over to okay. that.
0: Okay, cool. Uh, so what? What you've kind of already answered this. I feel like by this time everyone's already answered this question. But <laughs> what keeps you coming back to this movie? Why have you seen it so many times?
1: Because it is. It's like like I said before. Any good mystery you want you want to live within this world and find out more about this information were there more clues along the way that's why like people will rewatch memento or mm-hmm. any like allowed like the chris nolan movies or people will go back and rewatch fight club to see all the kind of hints and jabs of the audience like yo wink wink nudge nudge this is important here it's subtle but it's important mm-hmm. and the performances of it and it's it's not something it's like we mentioned before it's not an easy movie to go back to it's like Hey, like we've mentioned before, like well, us hey, I have some free time. We've watched this. No, right, you gotta sit It is a one. Invested. Yeah, and I remember I rewatched this actually recently before this podcast. I'm like, I have this to. is technically, a- <laughs> yeah, this is a Thanksgiving movie. I can watch this around Thanksgiving sure. if I really want to. Maybe even
0: Christmas. <laughs> Just
1: kidding. yeah. Oh yeah, that'll be a really jolly Christmas. Like, let's watch Prisoners, guys. Right. Let's have the whole family around. It'll be it'll be a bonding experience for all of us. Right, um and to see, it's also curious to see a progression of a filmmaker like this is Denny's first English language movie. Um, then, like Enemy came out, I guess uh, a few months later before this, I'm not too sure what the release date is for that. But and then see where he would go from this to Sicario to Arrival to Blade Runner and now presumably Dune is his next movie.
0: Yeah, and uh, I think he's also working on Cleopatra wow yeah yeah huh. dune i'm uh, more excited about but
1: yeah yeah i mean the <laughs> last time they last last time hollywood made a movie about cleopatra it was enormously expensive and it didn't make any money so i'm just curious i'm worried about that idea alone yeah. but dune I, i'm fascinated by i mean i tried reading the book but it was I think I have to give it another try, I'll be honest.
0: It's a rough read. I'm not, I mean, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. When I first read it, I got very frustrated, and I told a friend, like, hey, I'm having a really hard time juggling all these terms and ideas in my mind and trying to follow the story, to which my friend responded, well, there's a glossary in the back of the book. And I thought he was joking, but there really is. So if you (laughs) decide to read that again, I encourage you to constantly thumb back to that glossary because... As much as I like to watch things with detail, I'm not great at juggling all those details in my mind when I'm reading a book. So Mm -hmm. it definitely helps to read the glossary. I think the story is incredible and extremely rewarding if you can get through it. Um, It's definitely worth it. And I think he's one of the only directors that I would trust to even tackle it. Because I'm not one of your typical Dune fans that says, oh, I, I liked the movie or the miniseries. I think both of them are hard to watch. Um, yeah, and it's understandable because the story is hard to read <laughs> so I'm I'm interested to see a filmmaker capture some of the concepts and ideas and philosophies in the book and, and put it in a movie where we can really enjoy and appreciate it and I think that he did that with Arrival I mean there's some really high level concepts in Arrival in a sci-fi realm that I think a lot of general audiences probably wouldn't normally want to see or think about and yet he was able to make them digestible so I think he could do that with Dune um, yeah, but it's still, it's like it's up in the air. I hope. I hope so.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I was like, I just hope his career is not too hampered because of the financial, um, I guess, unfortunate situation with Blade Runner twenty four nine. We're not right. saying that Blade Runner twenty four nine didn't make any money. No, it was just it made money. It made a lot of money. It's just it was just a very expensive movie to make.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. Yeah, I think. I think for me, what keeps me coming back to this movie is just that. It's rare when you see something that has this many twists and turns and uh, this many surprises. It, you know, once you get the full picture, usually that's kind of like, well, the magic's gone, right? It, there's, there may not be rewatchability there if you know what's going to happen next. But I think with this movie, it's the craft, the story um, is it, so good that it, you can rewatch it and you can get more from it. And it's still exciting. You know, even even those tense moments in the film that were so tense the first time I saw it, I felt like exhausted when I was finished with the movie. Maybe I don't feel that intense now, but but it's still very thrilling to watch. And I think it's I think that's tough to do with a movie like this. So that's why I kind of keep returning to it. Um, what would you say to someone that's never seen this movie before? Like, how do you pitch it?
1: Do you want to see Wolverine not in control? <laughs> And do you want to see want to see Donnie Darko be a real hero in a movie? Mm -hmm. And like, oh, like you a movie with Donnie Darko and and Wolverine and they're trying to find children like, okay, and like it's it's a longer movie. It can be talky at times, but it's it's rewarding to watch it all the way through.
0: Yeah, it's one of those movies that's completely nuts. Uh, I also got kind of a Seven vibe off of it with just how shocking some of the Clue reveals are. But it's all purposeful and it all makes sense in the end. Uh, and I think that's really hard to do. And it's not pretentious. There's definitely some symbolism. There's some thinking going on. But it's not so, like, over the top to where you're, like, lost and thought the whole movie. <laughs> you know, it's still exciting. Uh, So that's what I would say. I I actually really liked your summary of it where you said – how did you phrase it? You were saying that uh, there's a detective looking for a killer, uh, but then his main suspect, the father, actually has tied up. I can't remember exactly how you phrased it. but
1: Yeah, it's a movie about a detective (laughs) trying to find two missing children, but the father, one of the children, kidnaps the prime suspect for his own interrogation.
0: I think that right there is a really good sell for the movie. Cause that's the movie in a nutshell, but then it's even crazier than that. So.
1: Yeah. I mean like that's to get him in the door and the rest of the movie takes him on this incredible experience.
0: Yeah. Well, my last question, this is like a wild card question, but um, since you're such a DC nut, how do you feel about Jake Gyllenhaal possibly being Batman? What are your
1: thoughts on that? I am 100% for it. If like, if, matt reeve's uh trilogy is doing a younger batman i do not want to see the origin again i would love to see like okay we can do batman year two to year five and have him go from like all right i am established in gotham and become a more prominent figure sure is he shorter than ben affleck yes i I recognize that but like put him in the suit he'll be fine Mm -hmm. i mean he he will give a a nuanced performance as batman i'm curious to see as him as the debonair billionaire i'm curious to see what like how he'll do that like going to like the highfalutin societies of being like being the kind of lush playboy of gotham and how that will play but i'm sure he'll he'll crush it like that i would i'm all for that if they just want to keep with this batman they want to say let's do john ham i'm fine with that i mean i'm not opposed to it whatsoever
0: I would say for me, the reason why I kind of prefer or want to go the Jake Gyllenhaal route, I I already believe, you know, and I don't have any reason to 100% believe this, I just do. I think that Matt Reeves is going to do a younger version of Batman because then it can be completely separate without being totally separate, if that makes sense, from the rest of the, the universe that is kind of possibly still being built. Um, so I think that's a good way to do that. And then... I think that Jake Gyllenhaal can bring a level to Bruce Wayne that, say, Christian Bale did. Um, because what I really liked about Christian Bale's portrayal of Batman and Bruce Wayne is that he had that broken quality, that that pain, that, uh, that psychological layer that I find the most exciting about that character. Um, I Not taking away anything from Ben Affleck at all, I think he's a great Batman, but I definitely think he's the more general audience, uh, happier, even though he's not really happy, but but just (laughs) a lighter version, I think, of Batman, as crazy as that sounds, than, say, the way that Christian Bale plays it, you know, more psychological, more tortured, and I prefer that. I mean, some of my favorite Batman stories are darker, and I like those the most, so I would love to see them go that route, and I think Jake Gyllenhaal is one of the few actors that could really go there. Um, and has proven that he can go there so i'd like to see that as far as charming i mean the guy is just he's hella charming right i mean he's a playboy in real life so i think he could probably pull that off pretty well and i would i would like to see that um so so yeah he is shorter but meh you know i don't have any problems with height so those are my thoughts <laughs>
1: I, I do find it funny that you say like yeah that ben affleck's batman is more of a general audience thing i like This dude did break a man's neck and gunned a bunch of people down in BVS. But you
0: know what I mean? Like, no matter what he does, he's Ben Affleck. Am I wrong? Yeah. A little bit. I mean, it's not that I can't separate them at all, and I really did appreciate him, but I didn't really... When he's Batman, 100%. When he's Bruce Wayne, it's, you know, it's really, really good. And it's a lot like the animated series version, but it's definitely not like the Arkham version. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. So, so that so those that's my thought. But you I know mean, what? I'm good uh, with all of it, to be honest with you.
1: So. <laughs> yeah, and I, I was just thinking about this, and like you were saying, like DC Universe is still being built. You put a question mark at the end of that sentence. How <laughs> I, I imagine just that, being honest. <laughs> yeah, the DC Universe is a Formula One race car that's being built as it goes. However, it's in the middle of a race.
0: Yeah.
1: While it's while it's in the middle of a race, while it's still being built.
0: Yeah. Right.
1: And I'm like, it is, it's going 100 miles per hour, but there's so many people like, all right, we got to do this to make sure this works and everything. And I, I am, I am optimistic for what is going to go forward. I am, I am happy with the movies we got. Um, I've come around on Justice League a lot. I mean, so, of course, year. I, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I'm on a podcast. Of course, I got to be talking about Batman. Uh, um,
0: I was going to say that, like, for anyone listening to this podcast that is purely listening to it for movies and gets tired of my constant DC talk, like, hey, I'm sorry. Okay, it's my show. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's no, going to come mean, up. And, like, half my guests are DC guests. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> like, I, I am.
1: Of course. I mean, I, I'm like, I'm contemplating getting a piece of the Batman anime series art tattooed to, uh, to my arm. So I'm like, it's, yeah, DC is something that is, is part of my core and how I define myself. When, I'm like, yeah, I, I walk around with several Batman memorabilia on me at, at all times. So I, I can't <laughs> help too. but deny the, yeah, I can't deny the fact that I'm a DC fan, but yeah. I'm sure we can, we can probably expound upon hours more about our, oh, our yeah, feelings. Yeah universe <laughs> just not sure, there Sure.
0: well uh well thank you so much for coming on and, and thanks thanks for coming on kind of short notice uh, i usually give like over a week but it's just been kind of crazy lately so i kind of gave you a couple days so i really appreciated uh you coming on and love the movie that you chose and would love to have you back
1: oh thank you and no problem i mean actually it's just like, as you know, like, and some other people know that it's been like, it's been a rough couple weeks. It's just me personally. So, and I haven't been able to podcast in like three weeks at all. So mm-hmm. this is actually, I really needed this. So I really need to thank you for presenting this opportunity for me.
0: Well, anytime, Tim, just, you know, shoot me a message. And as I've told other people, when, if I haven't gotten to you yet, keep pestering me. Because usually it just means there's a lot going on. I don't want to forget about you. So reach out. We'd love to have you back. Uh, Tim, where can they find you? Uh, y- you haven't plugged your podcast yet or your Twitter. So so do that now.
1: All right. If you want to follow me on Twitter, you can follow me at Timothy Rooney 2. Because some bastard took up Timothy Rooney 1. What? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I-, I could just – I could like – I was change- thinking about changing the URL. to like GingerGeek1 and be like, yeah, there will be a little more – easy to find. Uh, you can follow my Instagram at Rooney 1012 uh, I have a bunch of embarrassing uh, selfies and uh, and the uh, and name things I do while with my own filmmaking and podcasting. My podcast itself is called The Anything Goes Podcast where uh Lisa was on recently when we mm-hmm. talked about Man of Steel before the uh Justice League was uh was released and you can find that on iTunes and soundcloud.com where we are talking about all things geek and pop culture. We talk about movies, we talk about books, we talk about animation, we talk about TV. It's a plethora of geek of geek uh, culture that's being talked about there. I know it's kind of broad, I know that. We will talk about from things from Stranger Things to the Justice League Animated Series to we've talked about the entire Harry Potter series, movies and books, both Ooh, separate.
0: I've got to listen to those. I listened to your Stranger Things episode, really liked that one, so I'll have to go back and listen to the <laughs> Harry Potter ones.
1: Oh, and they're even longer and they're even like it's the, the funny thing is that as soon as I was done with the Stranger Things episode, like I stopped recording. I look at Chris. He's like, you know, that was like the least tangent episode we've ever done. And we still talk for three hours. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I mean, like there's a
0: lot to say about those movies. Let's be honest. And yeah,
1: it's true. And that's true. And it's funny. I was I-, I actually re-listened to our Man of Steel episode because my phone's being weird. It's only downloading my own episodes. And so I'm like, I couldn't download anything else. I'm like, all right, I was listening to my old shows. I know it sounds like such a narcissistic thing to like, I want to hear my own voice back. And that's how I get <laughs> my day. But no, because I really enjoyed the conversation. And we're trying to, we're in a minefield of geek culture. And, and while we're viewing that movie, and we're mm-hmm. both like, ah, e, ooh, let's hopefully we don't piss anybody off with that. But.
0: <laughs> you know and what, I, of course, it's worth the risk, you know? They, they want to hear your thoughts on it. Come, come yeah at me. come at me bro like get on twitter and talk with me about it i'm open to that
1: <laughs> exactly i'm like i'm not going to silence my opinions uh, how i feel about things and i would of course i the door is always open for you to come back on whatever oh, you yeah. want well I, I
0: would love to yeah for sure well,
1: and uh oh, oh no, go, ahead. go on uh last two things i'll plug is we have a facebook page the anything goes podcast on facebook and like us there you can find out all the kind of things that are coming up with the podcast as well as my own short films which you can also find on youtube the through the lens productions channel and my latest short film uh dd is up i'm in the process of cutting together a best of 2017 of all the things I've made thus far and a little montage as well as a little promo video of everything I have planned to do in 2018 on, in a podcast form. Okay. Enough plugs.
0: Okay. That's, that's so awesome. Like I love when I have people on the show that are not only fans of film, but have studied it and are creating things. That's so great. Like anything that you have like that, feel free to share in our group too. Um, post your videos and things like that. You're always welcome to. Uh, and yeah, thank you again for being on the show.
1: No problem. I, I didn't want to be like presumptuous to start plugging my own stuff there. <laughs> so okay. and be like,
0: it's welcome. Okay, fun. thank it's you. Fun. Yeah, the, the 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 group is for you guys, seriously. And it's just great having a, a safe space to kind of just chat movies with. So yeah, share the projects. It's, it's always welcome. Uh, well, thank, thank you. Yeah. Well, thanks, Tim. Uh, I hope you have a great night, and I hope we have you back soon.
1: All right. Thank you.
0: Bye. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for listening. Happy holidays. This was a super fun episode. It was great chatting about prisoners with Tim. Uh, If you have any feedback on this episode or any others, please feel free to reach out to me on Twitter under AYALisaCosplay on Instagram at AYA, and as Nancy, A-M-I, Lisa or in our closed Facebook group, I Love That Movie. Our group is closed, but just send a request and I'll add you. It's a safe space for movie lovers to discuss their favorite films judgment-free. My only rule is keep it positive. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe and rate the show, and if you leave a positive review on iTunes, you'll be entered to win a $20 gift card to a movie theater chain of your choice. We just recently hit 15 reviews, so congratulations to uh, Sam from the JLU podcast. He was our winner. I will draw again once we get 30 reviews, so, so leave one today. You could be our next winner. Uh, thanks so much, guys, and I look forward to hearing from you. you.